This is Jay, and welcome to Potstir Podcast. It's going to be a busy and hard-hitting spring, as I'm currently working on episodes discussing a number of subjects, including the Atlanta spree shootings, cancel culture, voter suppression, and more. You'll see these coming down the pike in the very near future, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Prime, or your favorite podcatcher so you'll get them once they drop. In anticipation of the new slate of episodes, I'm publicly releasing a bonus episode that was originally released on Patreon back in July 2019. In this episode, I sought to explore the impact of graphic imagery used in broadcast media. How do such images affect viewers? And how do they lead people to act politically? While this was recorded prior to the filmed killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police and the resulting protests that dominated the headlines over the summer of 2020, the themes in this episode can easily be applied to that tragedy and the demonstrations that ensued. In addition, I discussed the use of content warnings in audio and visual content. I use them in a number of my episodes, including this one, to give listeners a heads up about topics that will be discussed that may be particularly upsetting or triggering to some. I hope you're excited about the slate of episodes that are coming soon, and I definitely hope that today you'll enjoy this bonus episode. Content warning. Graphic descriptions of physical violence, physical suffering, and death throughout the episode. Listener discretion is advised. I don't watch a lot of TV shows in my free time. It's not that I think I'm better than everybody else. It's just that when I'm relaxing at home, I tend to watch YouTube videos or pro wrestling matches, play video games on PC, or listen to other podcasts. But one of my favorite shows of all time is the show Mad Men. I love it so much. It's the only show where I own the box set. Mad Men is a period series set in the 1960s about a successful executive at a New York advertising firm. While the characters and overarching plot are fictional, it does incorporate real-life historical events in some of the episodes. In one of the earlier seasons, they cover the period of time when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and then only two days later when his assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, was killed by nightclub owner Jack Ruby. While the Kennedy assassination was not played live on television, the Oswald killing was live, and the family of the main character, Don Draper, including his children, are shown watching these events. It's crazy to think that not only so much history, both good and very, very bad, occurred in the 1960s, but that a fair amount of it was caught on camera and broadcast into homes around the country. Assassinations, killings, riots, war, so much of it was shown on TV in those days. Even those who had the privilege of being untouched by the turmoil of the 1960s, they couldn't simply turn to a different channel or avoid the newsstands. 
killings and assassinations of many of our nation's leaders. Not only JFK, but Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and JFK's brother, Robert F. Kennedy. The toll the Vietnam War had on U.S. soldiers and the Vietnamese people alike. The violence perpetrated on civil rights demonstrators. No matter your race or your class, you would, on some level, be confronted with the horror of these events. While we have greater access to information today, through the cable and satellite TV, and especially the internet, we also have a greater ability to curate what we see and hear. If an incident makes the news that is unpleasant, uncomfortable, scary, or triggering, we're able to easily ignore most of the time. Is that a good thing? Well, that's not an easy question to answer. This month's Patreon bonus episode is about viewing images of violence and tragedy brought forth by acts of injustice and oppression. In the age of overexposure, narrowcasting, and content warnings, is there a place for seeing the unbridled truth about our world? I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstarer Podcast. The topic of this episode was inspired by a discussion I read on Facebook surrounding a graphic photo that has recently made the news. Oscar Alberto Martinez, his wife Tanya, and their 23-month-old daughter Angie Valeria, who were from El Salvador, were making their way to the U.S. to seek asylum. They were at an overcrowded migrant camp waiting to gain access to a U.S. port of entry, where it was reported that U.S. agents only grant three appointments a week, a process called metering. The temperatures at these camps were reaching 110 degrees. Desperate, Oscar, Tanya, and Angie Valeria attempted to gain entry to the U.S. by crossing the Rio Grande, the river separating Mexico and the U.S. Unfortunately, little Angie Valeria fell into the water, and Oscar went into the water to save her. Both father and daughter drowned. The photo of their dead bodies, face down in the water, has made several news outlets. The discussion I read on Facebook was about the content warnings news and social media outlets have placed on this picture. The question was, are content warnings needed to allow people a choice as to whether or not to see the photo, or are these warnings used to censor a tragic event? therefore keeping us in the dark about the true impact of Donald Trump's inhumane and cruel Central American migrant policy. The person posing this, and essentially posing the question, who happened to be my friend and pastor, argued that content warnings on photos like this made it easy for Americans to ignore the human cost of Trump's immigration and asylum policies, and believed it was by design. Many of the commenters disagreed, arguing that they should be able to decide what they will see and not see, and that seeing the picture would be extremely upsetting, scary, and in some cases, even triggering. Both sides had thoughtful points, and it made me want to think through this a bit more, so I want to bring you all along with me in thinking through this, too. Because 
I believe there are important considerations that should be examined further. The vast majority of U.S. media sources are owned by five corporations, and of course, they have their own interests. They want to continue to ingratiate themselves with politicians, because that means fewer regulations, lower taxes and more tax loopholes, and increased profits. Part of this means releasing news stories that frame their actions favorably. Now, at the same time, they want large swaths of Americans, especially those in key demographics, those money-making demographics, to consume the stories they release. The vast majority of outlets make their money through selling ads. If the stories, and especially the images, are considered offensive or problematic enough for the audience to complain, or worse yet, tune out, they simply don't read, listen, or watch, advertisers won't see the benefit of sponsoring programs and they will bow out. At the end of the day, U.S. media, with the exception of public outlets such as PBS and NPR, is privately owned and are in the business of making and increasing profits. So their decisions can lean towards unfiltered information or the self-care of their audience. But raising awareness or allowing people the ability to put their psyches first are byproducts, not the driving force. But I think that this question touches on societal differences between earlier generations of American society and today, and also the importance of self-examination. I'll first give the case against the proliferation of content warnings. Since we've had the ability to take pictures, still photos and later moving pictures, photographers have been able to capture the worst the world has had to offer. War and its myriad effects on soldiers and civilians alike, assault, lynchings, massacres and genocides, natural and man-made disasters, and so on. In the 1950s and 1960s, the unfiltered, unadulterated pictures that showed the effects of racial segregation and the resistance from the civil rights movement were key to the movement's successes. In 1955, Emmett Till, a 14-year-old boy from Chicago, was visiting family in the town of Money, Mississippi. While there, he was accused of whistling at a white woman, which would have been an extremely dangerous act for a black male in the South, whether a child or an adult. The woman he was accused of whistling at recanted her story many years later, saying she lied about the incident and now kind of felt bad about doing so. But Emmett's cousin said in an interview decades later that he did whistle at the woman. He speculated that Emmett did so to show off to his cousins who tagged along with him to make sure he didn't do anything that would get him in trouble in the Jim Crow South. Since Emmett was from the North, he likely didn't realize the magnitude of what he had done. Whether he had whistled at the white woman or not, either way, it didn't matter. Perception was reality. Four days after the alleged encounter, the woman's husband and brother-in-law tracked down young Emmett, who was staying with his relatives, kidnapped him, tortured, and beat him beyond recognition, and shot him dead. The two killers threw his body into a nearby river and was found three days later. The murderers went on trial, and despite witnesses to the kidnapping and a clear motive, the all-white male jury acquitted them. 
Due to the U.S. Constitution's ban on double jeopardy, the cold, remorseless killers admitted to the crime a couple years later and were paid $4,000 by a publication for their story. Due to the extreme injuries Emmett suffered and the time his body was in the water, the body could not be fixed up sufficiently by the mortician. In these cases, the vast majority of families would opt for a closed casket funeral. But Emmett's mother insisted, quote, I wanted the world to see what they did to my baby, end quote. So Emmett's funeral was open casket. Photographs were taken of the heavily mutilated body in the casket, with his family mourning his death. The tragic and horrifying photo made it into magazines and was shown nationwide. Seeing what white supremacists were willing to do to a child motivated many people of different races to work vigorously for civil rights. This incident and the publication of the body of Emmett Till is widely considered to be a major catalyst for the civil rights movement and the early work of civil rights activists such as Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. Later in the 1960s, there were incidents such as the Children's March in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, where black children, some as young as eight years old, marching for civil rights, were attacked by the all-white police force using water from fire hoses and police dogs. This was caught on film and broadcast to homes across the country through the evening news. Seeing young children clearly being attacked by police upset many Americans, including white Americans, who could no longer ignore the horrors of Jim Crow racial segregation in the South. This led many viewers to pressure the federal government to take legislative action on the civil rights issue. Eventually, this culminated in the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Graphic images in American media during this same time period led to other changes as well. These images made a huge difference in the war that helped define this time period, the Vietnam War. Now, first of all, this was a war where the reasons for our involvement were less than clear. World War II, by comparison, the last congressionally declared war, was one we officially entered into after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, a U.S. military base in Hawaii. But simplified, Vietnam was originally a war that started in 1955 between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. North Vietnam was communist and supported by the Soviet Union, China, and a number of other communist countries. South Vietnam was anti-communist and supported by several countries, such as Thailand, Australia, the U.S., and a number of other countries. This was a proxy war, a Cold War-era military conflict where the U.S. and the Soviet Union indirectly fought each other through supporting different sides of conflicts in other countries. But by the late 1950s, the U.S. began getting involved directly, sending troops starting in 1959 to support South Vietnam and sending more throughout the 1960s and early 1970s, despite Congress never declaring war. The other thing to keep in mind that made Vietnam different was this. The Vietnam conflict was called the first televised war. While previous wars that the U.S. was involved in, such as World War II, were filmed, 
These films were highly curated and showed the U.S. in the best light possible. But Vietnam was another story. In 1950, only 9% of American homes had TV. But by the 1960s, TV sets were in 90% of homes in the U.S. So with the proliferation of TV as a popular medium, TV networks, as well as other types of media outlets, sent an unprecedented number of correspondents to Vietnam. In the early 1960s, during the early years of the U.S. involvement in Vietnam, news coverage was positive. So most Americans were behind the war at that point. But the turning point was the Tet Offensive in early 1968. While the U.S. and their allies, the South Vietnamese, were for the most part successful, the immediate coverage of the event highlighted the barbarism of war. This included images of a guerrilla soldier fighting for North Vietnam being executed by the South Vietnamese. This, and subsequent images of the horrors of war, as well as later news that the U.S. was losing ground, turned the tide of public opinion against the war. Later images, such as the iconic photo taken in 1972 of a young girl running naked in agony from burns due to chemical warfare, known as Napalm Girl, those images further soured the country on the Vietnam War. The turn in public opinion led to President Lyndon B. Johnson deciding not to seek re-election in 1968, and it led to President Richard Nixon aborting the war effort in 1973. Unfortunately, this also led to a lot of anger and harassment against soldiers who fought in Vietnam. In the 50s and 60s, and even into the 70s, TV became the primary medium and many American families began centering their evenings around TV programming. Also, print media was much more popular than it is now. At the same time, there were very few TV stations. In large cities, there were maybe three stations if you were lucky. Remember, this was before cable and satellite TV, and this was well before the proliferation of the internet. It was also before technologies such as VCRs, and definitely before DVR and parental controls. Families only had so many choices on what to watch, and there was no way to review the nature of the programming beforehand. So people were being exposed to these images without much in the way of warning, and because so many Americans including those who were otherwise not involved in the events, weren't black Americans in the South, weren't soldiers in the jungles of Vietnam, weren't Vietnamese children and families having their lives torn apart by a proxy war. These Americans were forced to confront these images, and it made a huge difference politically and socially. In the 70s and then throughout the 80s and 90s was the spread of cable and satellite television. It was no longer the case that you had only a couple of TV stations to choose from. There were now several channels, and increasingly these channels focused on specific types of programming. Channels dedicated to music, movies, kids shows, court cases, and even the news. And then with the new millennium came stations dedicated to a specific aspect of a genre. Country music, indie movies, and for the sake of this episode, news geared towards ideological conservatives or liberals. The same happened with other types of media as well. Radio, once home to variety shows and straight news reports, became the home of right-wing shows like Rush Limbaugh and Michael Reagan. And then there was the dawn of the internet. 
It went from news groups and virtual bulletin boards visited by a few tech-savvy early adopters in the 80s and 90s to an all-encompassing plethora of websites run by media conglomerates, special interests, and just regular individuals who wanted to make their voices heard. This has meant that Americans can more easily curate the media they want to consume. They can more easily choose what information to listen to and what to ignore based on what reinforces their own sentiments and interests. Occasionally, events such as September 11th occur, and these events, including the images, aren't so easily ignored. But in general, increasingly over the past 20 or 30 years especially, we've been able to pretty much avoid the images and realities that make us uncomfortable or challenge our existing views. Now, let's consider the other side of this. While it's true that Americans in, say, the 50s, 60s, 70s were exposed to these heart-wrenching and violent images, at the same time, this may have taken a mental toll on those who viewed them. This period of time was when baby boomers, the generation that was born from 1946 through 1964, was growing up. Author Bruce Gibney wrote a controversial book a couple years ago called a Generation of Sociopaths, How the Baby Boomers Betrayed America. Gibney argues that baby boomers, who are now our older generation, have lacked prudence, empathy, and respect for facts, which has led them to enrich themselves through the cutting of taxes, destruction of the environment, and disastrous economic policies that are destroying the future of the U.S. Now, I'm not sure if I would fully agree with this view. These events have occurred, but I'm not sure how productive it is to blame an entire generation, a generation that, of course, varies in their experiences, worldviews, and actions for the position we're in as a country. That said, I'll be honest, I find the idea of boomer sociopathy intriguing, but for a completely different reason. Sociopathy is a term used to refer to antisocial personality disorder. In antisocial personality disorder, people with this disorder find it difficult to care for the needs and feelings of others. So in other words, they lack empathy. According to a piece in Medical News Today, quote, people with this condition may harm others, engage in criminal behavior, or consider the needs of others only when doing so benefits them, end quote. But unlike psychopathy, which is a similar disorder, Sociopathy is generally due to nurture rather than nature. So here's where I'm going with this. If baby boomers are more likely than later generations to be sociopaths or have some features of sociopathy, could it be in part because of the turbulent times in which they grew up? And part of that being that many of them were exposed at young ages to images and situations that were traumatic and they may not have been ready for mentally. Now, I don't have data for this. It's pure speculation, but it's something worth thinking about. Now, getting away from sociopathy, here's another thing to think about. Well, today, we're nowhere near where we should be in terms of how we treat mental health. Our current society, in general, treats mental health issues with less stigma than in generations past. Millennials and Gen Z particularly, tend to be more open with their mental health issues and are more likely to encourage those 
who live with these issues to seek help. Previous generations, not so much. And a lot of this is because of developments over time in terms of mental health. We rarely institutionalize people who deal with mental illness these days, and it's harder to do so than in earlier periods in our history. Now, part of that is because of the lack of mental health funding, which is not a good thing. But part of it is because of what is considered mental illness has changed over time, and there have been advances in modern medicine, psychology, and psychiatry that allow people to live productive, content lives and effectively treat their mental illnesses. Now, can we progress even more? Yes. Of course, advancements can still be made, and access to mental health care needs to be improved greatly. But awareness and sensitivity, though imperfect, have definitely improved over time. Today, we better recognize the effects of trauma on people's mental health. Post-traumatic stress disorder and a number of anxiety and depressive disorders are often long-lasting effects of traumatic events in people's lives. And when people are coping with and living with the effects of trauma, some conversations, images, sounds, and even smells can be what is called a trauma trigger. A trauma trigger is a sensory experience that can call back to a person's trauma or exacerbate the mental health issues they deal with as an after effect of the trauma. This is why I add content warnings to episodes that feature descriptions of events that can be triggering to people dealing with traumatic events. Because these are real things people live with. It's not a catchphrase. And it's the right thing to do to make people who cope with trauma aware in advance, whenever possible, that content may come up that could be upsetting to them. So circling back to content warnings on images that depict in graphic detail the real effects of political policies and social customs. Here's where I fall on this. We need them, particularly for people who are living with trauma and trauma-related mental illness. But I think, in general, we need to be honest with ourselves. If we're actively avoiding the truth of human suffering at the hands of our government or society, why we're making that choice? We need to keep in mind that for people suffering in these incidents and those in similar situations, they don't have the luxury of ignoring the reality. The horrors that refugees from Central America face in their journeys and in their efforts to seek asylum are not something they can just click off when it gets too hard to see. The ability to ignore suffering is a form of privilege. That said, I'm not advocating a steady viewing diet of violence. People coping with trauma shouldn't trigger themselves for the cause, and even those who aren't living with trauma need to practice self-care on some level. If we don't limit, to some degree, our consumption of real-life suffering and violence, we can burn ourselves out or become desensitized to what we're seeing. Our mental health is just as important as our physical health. I enjoy politics, and it's important to me both personally and to keep you guys informed on the podcast, to stay up to date on political and social issues as much as I can. At the same time, for example, I can't always watch the latest police shooting caught on camera that gets sent to me or I come across on Twitter or Facebook. Because I'm not going to lie, that's stressful. It hurts to see someone's life snuffed out, especially without due process. 
People who have parents, kids, families, and friends who will miss their presence. Positive impact that is lost and potential that will never be realized. Because the victims of police brutality and shootings are disproportionately Black Americans, especially Black men. When I watch these videos, it renews fears of my brothers, my cousins, my uncle, having the misfortune of coming across a cop having a bad day. Has anyone in my family been murdered by police? No. So it's not a matter of trauma triggering for me. But it's like a lot of bad things. It doesn't happen until it does. So there are times that I do need to practice self-care. And I advocate self-care for people generally, regardless of any history of trauma. That said, we need to be careful that our efforts at self-care don't turn into excuses for comfort. The last thing we want to do is lose our humanity. Thank you very much for listening to this bonus episode of Pot Store Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Prime, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstarterpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. Subscribing means you're first in line for new episodes once they're released, so you don't have to wait. If you enjoy Potstarter Podcast, please give it five stars and leave a review. And I'm always on Twitter, so follow me there at PotstarterCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.